Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you this morning. What a pleasure to be in a church where we have two drummers going at one time. Isn't that a cool thing? And uh, yeah. I'll know it's time to retire that I've reached nirvana when we have three in one service, right? (laughs) But two is is pretty great. Will you stand with me as we read together from the Word of God, Matthew 21, 23 through 27. This is the Word of God. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing also, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is eternal, and I pray, Father, that it may come today not as my words, but as your word with power, with conviction by the Holy Spirit. May you do it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there is a technique if you debate, if you engage in public rhetoric, if you are a disputant in some way in a public forum, and you will know this technique if you are those things if you have done those things it's one a technique you must be aware of if you're going to engage in debate it's it has a technical name it's called to catch your opponent on quote-unquote the horns of a dilemma there are several colloquial names for this technique as well it's the same technique that you seek to employ when you try and catch your opponent between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's also called damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's also called a classic term for it from Homer, refers to the two deadly sea monsters that Ulysses had to navigate between on his voyage called Scylla and Charybdis. And so it's said to be between Scylla and Charybdis, these two deadly on either side, and it's very difficult to get between the two of them. And a final one that we're all familiar with is to say you caught someone between a rock and a hard place. The horns of a dilemma. It's a technique often found in the Gospels. It's used often by the Jewish religious leaders in their attacks on Jesus and their attempts to test him. The Sadducees who deny the resurrection try to catch Jesus on the horns of a dilemma when they tell him a story about 
about a woman who was married consecutively to seven brothers, seven brothers because one died and the next one fulfilling the Mosaic law, married her because there were no children. Then they say to Jesus, trying to catch him on the horns of a dilemma, so in the resurrection, Jesus, who will this woman be married to? Like, oh, wow. Well, there can't be a resurrection then because logically it doesn't make sense. That's what they think. They've caught him on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, she's married to all seven, well, that's polyandry. You can't have that, in heaven especially. Or if she's married only to one, well, then they're deprived of their life. So heaven and the resurrection, no, they don't really make sense. Another time, they ask Jesus if it's right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. And they're hoping in that one to put him at odds with the law of Moses. Either to say, well, Moses was wrong, or to say, well, Moses is right and you can do it, which popular opinion by the time of Christ was thoroughly against any time for any reason divorce. Another time, they ask him, is it appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar, hoping to catch him between Caesar and public opinion? You know, Caesar says you pay it. The public opinion was very much against it. Another time, they asked him if they should stone the woman caught in adultery. Horns of a dilemma, Jesus. Shall we put her to death? And uh, if he says yes, he becomes the agent of her death. If he says no, well, he's criticizing Moses. Uh, Jesus was never caught, was he? Not at one time on these horns of dilemmas did they ever catch him. But again and again, as we see him doing here, he turns the tables on them using a very specific technique to respond to their technique. Their technique is catch him between a rock and a hard place. Pin him on the horns of a dilemma. Have him make a choice between Scylla and Charybdis, between the devil and the deep blue sea, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. But Jesus has his own technique for responding and he turns the tables on them time after time. Here, they think they have him by asking him by what authority he does these things. Now, these things that he's been doing and that he's doing right now in Jerusalem in this last week of his earthly life include everything he did in Jerusalem on this week. Everything that was part of this last week of his earthly life, which is not complete yet, but already has set a tenor. For this week, he has come in in triumph on a donkey with children singing hosannas to the son of David with people putting palm fronds in his path and laying down their clothes as though he is at least a king, if not a deity. And then, of course, the angry cleansing of the temple, the merchants and the money changers being tossed out, being cast out by the power of his anger. What right do you have to come in here, Jesus? By what authority do you come into this temple over which we are established as rulers? And for that matter, why are you teaching with authority in the courts of the temple? This is our house. We are the rulers here. We have been established as the authorities. And they hate it. Every, every part of what Jesus does this week, everything he is, everything he represents, every word he speaks is a threat and they hate him. So the trap is simple. Whose authority do you do this by, Jesus? These things by? What authority are you operating under? And there are a number of possible answers. He can claim, well, it's my own moral authority, my own righteousness. I'm doing it on my own authority. And they can say, ah, ho, ho, yes, you, a son of, of Judah, 
a child of that tribe that was never given the right to rule over the temple, you have authority to rule over this temple. You, a sinner claiming an authority, you who like hanging out with other sinners, you who are a friend of drunkards and a companion of tax collectors and one who doesn't look askance at sinful women, you have the authority to cleanse us. He can claim ecclesiastical authority. He has authority to teach and work in the temple because somehow he is an authority in the house of God. But if he claims divine office, authority in the house of God, well, their office is superior. They are the anointed chief priests. They are the ones who have the supreme authority here, and they oppose him. He can claim civil authority if he wants. He can speak of his lineage, declaring himself David's son. But of course, that would put him at odds with Rome and make him an enemy of the state. Or ultimately, he can claim the authority of the Messiah, which is the authority of deity. He can claim divine authority, but that's where they really want him because then they will accuse him of blasphemy and put him to death. The irony is, of course, that all these claims are perfectly true. Every single one of these claims that Jesus is presented with, he could have said, and it would have been absolute truth. The claims, each of them would have been totally accurate. He has the right to say it all. He has the moral authority of a sinless life. He has perfect moral authority. He has the right to speak from his holiness. He is the great high priest over Israel. He is Israel's great high priest, the high priest of all time. He is the son of David, and thus king of kings, lord of lords, and he is Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. All these things are there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, is pregnant with the authority of the Messiah. And he's here. But to a mocker, authority is cause only for derision. Mockers value only their own wit, their own ingenuity, their own station in life, and they tear and attack everything else and all other forms of authority. They, the mockers, they alone are the authorities, and they use the authority of mocking tongues to tear down every authority but their own. You can be a mocker and be an authority. We live in a day when all our authorities seem to be mockers, tearing down every authority but their own. And Jesus is facing mockers, men who value only their own opinion, their own selves. They are rebels sitting on self-appointed thrones over the house of God. They are. They are not even the anointed true high priests. They have not followed the lineage of Aaron. They are not. So, Jesus responds with a technique, and that technique is to turn the tables on them, to pin them on the horns of a dilemma using the very tactic they employed against him. He goes back right at them, just as he did with the woman caught in adultery. They say, should we stone her? He's drawing in the dirt. And then he looks up and he says, let you who are the, without sin be the first to cast a stone. And the Bible says that they started walking away from the oldest to the youngest. They've been caught and they know it. Jesus is doing this constantly. When they ask him, whose wife will she be? He looks at them and says, 
Wow, you're in such error knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He goes right back at them. You want to talk about authority, Jesus says to these men on this occasion, fine. But first, let's talk about the authority of someone else. Let's talk about the authority of John the Baptist. You knew John the Baptist. You heard him preach. You were in Israel. You were the leaders of Israel during that time. Tell me. Was the authority of John, John the Baptist, from heaven? Or was it of men? <laughs> and let me tell you, the crowd, and there's a crowd surrounding them as this goes on, the crowd is stunned and then delighted because these men are trapped. Either they deny the heavenly authority of John whose holiness and divine power were evident to all, even to his murderer, Herod, who used to bring him in and feared him but delighted in hearing him speak because Herod himself, the guy who put him to death, knew that this man was from God. In fact, when he heard Jesus was doing miracles, he said to himself, wow, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And that is an Idumean half-Jew who says, John the Baptist, that guy was of God. So these men, they know John the Baptist. They know the masses revered John. And they can say, okay, it was from heaven. And thus subject themselves to the laughing scorn of the crowds who will then respond, oh yeah? Well, why did you hate him so? Oh, yeah? Then why did you not listen to him? Oh, yeah? Then why were you so glad when Herod put him to death? And why were you urging that, that to Herod? Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? So they can say, well, it was from heaven. Or <laughs> they can say it was of man. Or they can say it was from heaven and then face the same question. <laughs> Either way, they're trapped. If they say it's of man, then the crowds say, oh, come on. Everyone knows it was of God. They can say it was of heaven, and then the crowd says, oh, then why did you ignore him? Neither choice is good. And the crowd, that crowd clearly remembers John calling out the religious leaders who came to hear him, saying things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? So he knows, they know, everyone knows that John was at war with these people. There's no good answer. They've encountered a superior authority in Christ just as they had in John and they're exposed as hypocrites and mockers by their attempt to tear him down. Everyone in the crowd who hears these leaders respond to the question of Christ, uh, we don't know remembers full well how they claimed to know how evil John was, how they attacked him, how they belittled and refused to believe him. They understand that those, these men rejected John. They're now afraid to admit it. They comprehend, in other words, the pure cowardice that stands before them. They look at these religious leaders and they say, under their breath, no doubt, coward, coward, hypocrite, coward. These men confer they get together in a little conclave, a little clutch of men after Jesus gives them the question, tell me, I'll answer you. First, you tell me, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? They see them. <laughs> then the spokesman comes forth. He walks up and he says, uh, 
And they laugh. And they go, you don't know. You don't know. And they understand real clearly that these guys have just run the white flag up the flagpole. We don't know. We don't know. What was it? We don't know. Huh. Really? All that conferring, all those years of opposition, all those things, and now you say, well, we're not quite certain. Well, you were certain a year ago. You were certain two years ago. You were certain three years ago. What's happened? Nonsense, garbage. The crowd is going, there's probably cat calls and hooting going on. Christ knows, they themselves know, everyone knows. These people, these chief priests, they know that everyone knows that they're cowards. They know they're cowards, and they know that everyone knows they're cowards, that they really do have an opinion on the baptism of John, that they denied it once, and they would again if they weren't afraid. And they know that they're caught, and they know that they've been made fools of, seeking to pin Christ by making him choose between the devil and the deep blue sea, hoisting him, as the saying goes, another one of these sayings, hoisting him on his own petard, raising him up on his own sword, trapped on the horns of a dilemma of their own making. They thought that they were pinning Christ. They themselves are hoisted on their own petard. Now, we are always to learn from Jesus in everything, in every way, at all times. We are to imitate him. He is our example. We are to walk as he walked. We are to speak as he spoke. These are scriptural admonitions. Walk as he walked. Speak as he spoke. Put on Christ, the Bible tells you. His words becoming your words. His example, your example, your life. His path, your path. We are told that we're no better than our master as his servants. The disciples are not greater than the master. Therefore, we should expect to go through all that he went through. It's a statement that says, you are to be like Jesus and you are to experience what Jesus experienced. What he suffers, you will suffer. What you have seen him do, what you have read him do, where you have seen him go, how you've seen him talk and act, you are to consciously emulate. He is going to the Father. He tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit may come to them to dwell in you. He's gone back to God, and he says, it's good that I go back because I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit. He's going to dwell in you. And you're going to do even greater things than I've done because I'm going to the Father, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit. You are to be like Christ. So this is not simply a story to stand off and be thrilled by. You're not a crowd in a coliseum watching the gladiators go at it and going, whoo, that's quite a blow, whoo, I like that. Oh, look at how Jesus eviscerated him. Oh, it's wonderful. There is that aspect to it. But in the end, if that's all it is to you, then you've failed to be a disciple because you are to do this. You are to act like this. You are to learn from this. This is for you to live out not a story to watch and be thrilled by like the TV show you watch at the evening and then the next day you go on your life, but something you're to consciously emulate. 
You are learning from Jesus how to wield your weapons and what your weapons are in a fight. This is the supreme weapon master of your soul and he's showing you your weapons and how you fight. He's called you to fight. He's called you to do battle. He's called you to enlist as a soldier under him. Where we see Christ fight, we must fight. How we see Christ fight, we must fight. Who we see Christ fight, we must fight. Most importantly, the weapons of Christ, the authority that we see him wield time and again against mockers is the weapon by which you are powerful. By his Holy Spirit, you wield this weapon, this authority, and you are to do it with the boldness and the confidence of Jesus Christ. And today, perhaps more than any other day in the history of the church since Christ, we need to understand and claim this authority, to claim this weapon, to claim the attitude, the character, and the tactics, including the weapons of Christ, who is our great leader because the attack of the world on the kingdom of God is precisely the same as the attack of those high priests who came to Jesus on this occasion. It's located precisely in the realm of your authority. What authority do you have? And we live in a day almost, I would say, without precedent in its attack on the authority of God, on the authority of those who follow God, on the authority of the kingdom of heaven. In the early days of the church, the attack of the heretics was on the authority of Christ. Was he indeed very God of very God, truly God? Was he indeed of the same essence and substance as the Father? And there were heretics who ranged all over the place, but against the authority of Christ in the early church. Some of them said that Jesus was just a good man, a moral example, Pelagius. Some said Jesus was the firstborn over creation, but created, not co-eternal with the Father, Arius. Every attack in the early church was on the authority of Jesus and it mirrors the attack we see here of the Pharisees who are not attacking the authority of God, they would say, but only the authority of Jesus. And in the early church, if the attack was not on the divine authority of the Son of God, it was on the divine nature and authority of the Holy Spirit. But no one attacked the authority of the Father. In the first 1950 years of the church, no one said, God doesn't have authority, that God is evil. Everyone said, we live for God and attack the authority of his son. This is so much the case that at one point, if you read Augustine on the Trinity, in arguing for the deity and full divine authority of Jesus, he says something like, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, these heretics attack Jesus, the Son of God, because no one could ever think of attacking God, the Father. Well, Augustine was wrong. 
Today, there is nothing more hated and more reviled and more rebelled against than the actual authority, the patriarchal fatherly authority of God the Father. In the Western world, this is precisely the point of attack. Novel, new, never before seen. It was not the Christians who attacked the fatherhood of God. If anyone did the authority of God, it was in the past the atheists. But now it is the Christians. It is the heretics within the church. The very nature of spiritual divine authority is under attack. Patriarchy, the authority not of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whom we think of as Israel's patriarchs, not their authority, but the authority that their authority is founded on, the authority of God the Father, patriarch of patriarchs. This authority is what is under attack. The principle of the authority of God is under sustained hatred and attack within the church. The principle of the Father's authority of authority flowing from the Father to the Son through the Holy Spirit. God the Father from whom all things come, including the Son, who is co-eternal with the Father and yet begotten by the Father of the same essence, the same substance as the Father. Very God of very God together with the Father, but who is not the Father, but the eternally begotten Son of the Father. This rudiment of our faith, this central truth of the Trinity, patriarchy itself, the very right of God the Father to speak with patriarchal authority to his creation, is the point of attack. Authority, the very principle of authority, the very fount of authority is under attack. And what is happening today is that all throughout the Christian world, men and women are cowering. They see the attack and they're going, "Ah!" having given up on patriarchy themselves, if not personally, at least as a viable reality in this world that we live in, Christians are seeking an authority that is based on everything but the authority of God the Father who lives and dwells in heaven. And so the church is seeking an authority and those who are in the church want authority, but they don't base it on God having given them authority and God being the authority. They base it on their being cool. They base it on their having money. They base it on their eloquence. They base it on their good deeds. They base it on their good looks. They base it on their Instagram or Twitter fame. They base their authority on their intellect, on their material wealth, on their educational degrees and the famous schools that they've attended. And everywhere all around us, everyone is running around in a great panic seeking some form of relevant, impressive authority so that we can finally speak and be heard. Every other kind of authority that exists, we've embraced. And we say we're doing so to communicate because of our desire to impress our world with the Christian message. We say we're doing this because we have to be relevant in our day. We have to win the world for Jesus, but that doesn't fly, and it doesn't fly for three reasons. First, Jesus never sought authority. Never. Jesus never tried to build his authority. Never. He had authority. 
He didn't build his authority. He had it from his day of birth when the angels sang his coming. From the Father, as the Son of God, he didn't seek authority. He possessed it. Second, God the Father is indeed king of this world. And Jesus has triumphed over the king of this age. Satan is defeated. And the disciples came back from their missionary journey. The first one where he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal diseases. And they came back and they reported all that they had done to Jesus. Reveling in the power that they had had. In the authority that they had been given. Jesus said several things. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. And he also said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. As they went out, Jesus saw Satan being knocked down by their authority. He fell. Christ is Lord. Lord of heaven. Lord of earth. Lord of all. Lord of lords. And you are seeking to impress the world and win the world as, as though there's no authority in Christ and that you have to have something cool about you to gain the world? As though the world needs you and you have the answer? Jesus never played this sort of game. Jesus was never big among the cool, the popular, the influential, and the wealthy. Son of a carpenter. And why was he content to be a son of a carpenter born in a stable? Because he had authority. The authority of the Father. He had a Father in heaven. He was the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. The only begotten of the Father. But we've turned aside from one thing that Jesus never turned away from, but always turned to. The authority of God. The authority of God, of the Father. Because Jesus knew full well, you see. He knew full well that those who were attacking him were really not attacking him, but were actually attacking the Father through him. God was their target and remains their target. Only now it's naked and uncloaked. No one bothers to attack the authority of Christ, but it's established that Jesus was just a, a nice guy. The attack is directly on the Father. God is the target. And when you are playing in this world on your own money rather than God's, when you are dealing your own authority rather than the authority of God, when you're seeking a personal authority rather than simply speaking for God, you diminish his authority and you blaspheme because you act as though God's authority is weak, but yours is wise. God's authority is kind of impotent, but yours is strong. You get culture. You know how to translate that, that feeble old father of yours so that he's relevant to the modern day. Third, the third reason this doesn't fly, our saying that, oh, we're doing it to bring Jesus to the people. 
First, Jesus never sought authority. Second, God is the authority. Third, Jesus, the Son of God, given all authority by the Father, hands over his authority to us. At his ascension into heaven, he speaks these words to his disciples. We know it is the Great Commission. Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all authority, has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I have been given all authority. Now go and call people to obey me. Teach them to obey me. Go out and tell them they need to obey Jesus. And I'm with you to the end of the age. Don't need to tell the world that Jesus is cool and sweet and nice and kind and wonderful. Tell them he's God and that you need to obey him. Tell them you'd better obey Jesus because he's coming back someday, as Paul says on the Mars Hill sermon. One day he's appointed a man that he's going to judge the world by. You need to repent, not because Jesus is cool, but because he's strong and powerful. Don't repent of your sin because Jesus is a nice guy. The Bible constantly tells you he is a great and wonderful leader. But he says repent and escape the wrath to come. Repent because there's a day appointed when he's going to return and he's going to judge the world. And we say, oh, that's a losing proposition for evangelism. That is no way to bring people to Jesus, but it's the way that John the Baptist did it. It's the way that Paul did it. Most importantly, it's what Jesus said over and over. So I want to end with a radical proposal. That proposal is this, that you and I, we together, perhaps Alone, alone in our families, alone in our workplaces, alone in Richfield Township, perhaps alone even in the northwest side of Toledo or even in the whole Toledo metro area, alone in Ohio, alone if need be, and I hope not and I don't think so, but if need be in the whole of this United States, if God ordains, that we, you and I, alone, stop trying to win and curry authority and to claim an authority that is outside the word of God and outside the person of his son and that we simply act in faith that God the father is indeed the source of all authority that we act as though God is in charge that he has given that authority to his son that we who belong to the father through the precious blood of his son are thus possessed of a greater authority under heaven than any ruler, king, magistrate, celebrity, tycoon that we could ever come against because we are washed by the blood of Christ and sons of God. Children of the heavenly Father, friends of Christ, joint heirs with Christ of the Father, possessors of the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit of God, Christ living in us. So the problem with God's people is never authority. It's always faith. It's not a lack of authority. It's a lack of faith in God's authority that he's given you.
God told Moses he would be God to Aaron, God to the people of Israel, God even to the Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. And Moses believed God. And he was God to the people of Israel, to Aaron, to Pharaoh, and even the Egyptians. He was a nothing from nowhere, and he set his people free because he acted in faith on the authority of God. So parents, what does this mean? Stop seeking authority and use the authority you have. You understand that the parents who are most loved and most honored by their children are are always the parents who have used their authority in the lives of of their children the most. Now, not the most negatively, but the most. That the parents who are loved are not those who are seeking to be friends and to give occasional counsel and hold themselves back from saying anything really strong because I don't want to harm this tender flower of a child I'm raising, but those who push and shove and say, you're going to honor God. You're going to honor God. Whatever happens, this family is going to honor God. And those parents are loved. They're loved, loved. Those who use their authority most powerfully for the good of their children because authority is for the good of those it's exercised amidst. The most loved parents use their authority powerfully for the good of their children by demanding of them in love, by requiring of them, by being God to them, by doing, as God said to Abraham, he was called to do, a commander, commanding his children to obey God. Command your children to obey God. You're not their friend, you're not their pal, you're their father and mother, and they are to honor you. You're not to be fearful of where they may go and what they may do if you use your authority to shape them. Because it is your authority or your lack thereof that is already shaping their world. You are shaping their world. Shape it right. If you're not using this natural authority that God has endowed you with as a father or mother, an authority infinitely empowered if you're a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit in you undergirding that authority that you already have as the origin of your children, then you are using worldly authority. If you're not using this, then you're doing it by human power. And if you are seeking to train your children by human power, you're abusing them. Because whatever form of human power it is, whether it's sweetness and light and never ever using the rod, or whether it's beating and beating, it's abuse if it's not of God. Teachers. In your teaching, I call you to believe that Jesus is Lord, that the battle is won, that God is with you as you speak about him, and so not to cower or to defend because the Christian doesn't play defense. We don't play defense. I'm not saying not to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, but I'm saying we don't play defense. God doesn't need our defense. He doesn't. You're not to be a coward. You're an authority. 
You're a professor. You're teaching truth. You can't believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Father who rules all eternity by his authority and be silent, especially in the face of evil. You, business leaders, business owners, I call you to recognize that what you have achieved and where you have gone and what you have accomplished is not your own success. It is not your glory. It is not your credit-worthy accomplishment. It is the result of a sovereign God raising you up. His authority undergirds everything. He made you. He gave things to you. He fills you. He ordains the customers that come your way, the dollars that fill your till. He drives the business to your website. And so all you have and all you are is from him. Live in faith in his power. Use your standing to honor him. Do not fear man. Do not fear losing your leadership if you stand for Christ. Don't fear losing your wealth. It came from God. Fear losing the approval of Christ. Fear standing outside the path of glory that is lit only by divine authority. The path that's illuminated and made clear in our lives only when we honor Christ through obedience to the Father. That is success now, that is success in the past, that is the success forever. Finally, to all of us, I want to say two things in conclusion. First, the problem with those who claim to be God's people is never a lack of authority, never a lack of power in our engagement with the world. We are not lacking authority. If you are lacking authority to accomplish what you want to accomplish, and you don't really have the authority to do it, then you're not of God. What you're seeking is not of God or you're not of God. The pastor who pastors to eat the sheep of his flock, to benefit financially, sensually, whatever, from the flock, is lacking authority because he is not under authority. If you lack authority, it is because you are not under authority. It's because you stand outside the stream of authority that extends from the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit to every single child of God. If you are within the will of God, the authority you have does not need to be burnished. It does not need to be gained. It does not need to be accumulated. It needs to be spent. Use it. Use your authority. Stand up like David and say, well, I don't know, but I know there's a God and I will fight. Go like Gideon who said, you know, I don't know, but Baal is not God and so I'm going to knock down his altars. Stand and fight. Stand and say, here I am and I can do no other. Stand for God and you'll find authority. Finally, I want to close by saying, of course, the authority that we have that is above all is the word of God. And I, myself, and all of you, I know, feel in certain ways and at many times in our lives that this authority, the authority of the word of God is weak. But I say to you, Jesus consistently, when he was challenged on his authority, responded with the word of God. 
He says, the word says. The word must be fulfilled. The word, the word, the word. If you don't know what to say, and you often won't, then simply quote the word of God and see how nations fall before you. The word of God is living and active. It is the power of God. Use the word of God. If your boss says to you something and he's a pagan, use the word of God. If you're a teacher and you're told you're going to be fired, use the word of God. God stands with his word. You will never fall. Use the word of God. Speak the word. Speak the word. Go out and tell the word of God. And you'll see like dominoes the world falling. If there's one thing our world needs today, it's Christians who believe the word of God and who speak it. Let two people believe the word of God and speak it and the world is changed. Changed. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, out of darkness, centuries of darkness, they came with the power of the word. Martin Luther, he said of himself, you know, I didn't do anything. I sat in Wittenberg and I drank beer. And the word of God defeated every army of the Pope. And I didn't have to lift a hand. Praise God, we have this word. Don't let this sword out of your hand. Speak it, speak it, speak it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have given it to us and that we have the privilege of speaking it. Now, Father, give us faith in you. May we understand that there is authority in heaven and that that authority is shared with men and that that authority is never, never victimized, Father, never defeated. We thank you that it is clear and true in your word that those who stand and speak will say at the end of their lives that God has been faithful and not one of his good promises ever failed us. Teach us to speak like this out of knowledge of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.